After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. birds over there yeah i'm way in the north carolina woods is that right whereabouts in north carolina near Asheville, north carolina about 20 oh, minutes yeah. outside of town you've been i've been to Asheville. yeah i've been yeah. to there's a college near there I, I visited one time uh-huh yeah so it's a blue ridge mountains it's absolutely yeah. gorgeous here yeah i'm going to north carolina pretty soon but not that part i'm going to chapel hill and durham raleigh yeah raleigh durham raleigh yeah are you teaching there? Yeah, my new book is coming out, as you know, and uh, I'm going to be doing uh, lectures and bookstore events and stuff like that in that area. Great. Everybody, yeah. this everybody, this is Norman Fisher, who I've been chasing for a good five years to get on the podcast. Oh. And Norman, welcome to Mind Rolling. Thank you. Good to be here. So uh, Norman's just mentioning his new book, which there'll be a link on the show notes page. The world could be otherwise. Imagination and the Bodhisattva path. Mm -hmm. What? Since we're right there around the book, what? How? Did, what was the motivation to to do this particular book with this particular subject? Well, I, I've got a lot of friends and talked to a lot of people, and uh, everybody is very concerned about the world as they ought to be. And I am too, of course. But uh, it, it occurred to me that the picture that we have of the world and the sense that we have of our own empowerment in it is really limited. It's kind of like there's a story about what the world is that's being told to us that we all totally accept as being the one and only story. And within that story, we're all sort of like confused, despairing, disempowered, and, and, you know, we just don't know what to do. So uh, it's obvious to me that, that, you know, we make the world to a great extent that we live in. Uh, we can't ignore the shared world, but the way the world feels to us, the way we feel in it, depends to a large extent about how we train our minds and hearts. So mm. I've always felt like spiritual practice uh, is... You know, it, it, it reads nowadays, religion and spiritual practice reads as a kind of um, regimentation, a set of rules, uh, a kind of limitation. But when you really think about where does it come from, it comes from the human imagination. You know, our sort of stories and feelings about our deepest, inmost uh, uh, way of being alive. And the arts come from that same source. And 
with imagination, you know, you can create a world to live in. You can create a world in which there is uh, empowerment and, and happiness and possibility and love. And so I really wanted to redefine the spiritual path as being a path of imagination. And I wanted to, I wanted to encourage everybody to take up a vision for their own lives uh, of being a bodhisattva, you know, being a person who is uh, on a path of love and kindness and awakening, and uh, that that's really what's going on, and that being in the world and trying to help the world is part of that path. But the path is bigger than that, and we don't have to be limited by these small-minded views of the world. So I, it was really in reacting to people that I was coming into contact with that made me feel like, you know, I really want to talk to people about the six paramitas. And that's what the book is largely about, the six paramitas as, as the bodhisattva path, as a path that any of us can practice. And it's bigger than Buddhism. You know, it's, it's a path of conduct, a path of contemplation. And so that, that's how I got to it. Yeah. Can you, Norman, be good if you could just, uh, just, quick uh, paramita 101 on what the paramita is on well everybody okay yeah well maybe i'll start take a step back and start with uh, the idea of a bodhisattva so a bodhisattva is uh, an inspired person who feels like a human being has the capacity uh, to be an awakened person you know really uh, seeing life clearly and loving life, and that that's the capacity that every human being has, and that walking that bodhisattva path and being a bodhisattva is essentially uh, altruistic. In other words, it's not just about me and my experience. If I really understand me and my experience, I understand my connection to the world. You know, I am the world, and the world is me. So the path of a bodhisattva is an altruistic path an endless path of awakening. So then, what is that path? What defines that path? And that's where the six practices, which are called the six paramitas, come in. They, they, these six different practices, which intermingle with each other at every point, define the path of a bodhisattva. Hmm. So the six practices are uh, generosity, uh, ethical conduct, uh, patience, patient forbearance, energy or enthusiastic effort, meditation, and wisdom. So these six practices, and I def and the book is all about defining them and actually giving various possible instructions for how to practice them. That's the burden of the book. And the word paramita actually means perfection, the six perfections and their practices that sort of go beyond themselves in other words the practice of generosity when it's perfected disappears and there's no such thing as generosity there's just you know living and being generous spontaneously and naturally and, and it's the same for the other of five paramitas that that walking the path of a bodhisattva becomes after a while not a, an intentional job and a sort of other, some other thing on your to-do list. It becomes a kind of way of life, a way, just the way that you spontaneously see life and understand your own life. So I, I talk about the six parameters in that life mm. book. That's, that's mostly what the book's about. And I frame it with an opening chapter uh, about 
the imagination. What is the imagination and how have we lost track of it and how could we cultivate it more? You know, about imagination, uh, this may be a reach of some sort or it might be incredible in terms of its transparency with two different traditions. But Ramdas, uh, you know, we have these retreats in Maui, actually going off to one shortly. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. So he often talks about, he says, I have a room that I go into, that I, you know, I have a room that I hang out to, hang out in, and it is with my guru, Neem Karoli Baba. Mm-hmm. And I hang out in that room with him and we discuss all sorts of things. And that room is my imagination. So the way that you just described the just at the very beginning about imagination and, and how it can um, uh, create a certain kind of an atmosphere that is inclusive of love and joy. Uh, and uh, there's some kind of parallel with, with, with what Ram Dass is saying in my mind. And uh, it's taken me a long time to even kind of grok what Ram Dass was, you know, where he was uh, leading with this I have a room that I hang out in called imagination. Does that make yeah, any sense? Yeah, no, I, I think not totally. It's, I think it's the same, it's the same point. And not surprising because spiritual practice is, is, occurs in the realm of the imagination. It, it, it expands the imagination, it develops it, uh, and, and it really uh, it's, it's becomes very palpable very, very real when you're a spiritual practitioner and all the efforts that you make in your practice, your meditation or whatever else you do, retreats, all those things are for the purpose of developing and strengthening the imagination. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you also, also talked about uh, how deeply committed to we are collectively in the, in the story of uh, what is going on in our world these days. And, uh, I wonder, though, about our individual story and how deeply we are committed to that. And it's something I've been talking to various teachers and friends about uh, over the last uh, number of months. And uh, Krishnadas, I think you know who Krishnadas is. Uh, I do, yeah. Yeah. He coined it by the movie of me. We get up in the morning and we are the star, the producer, the director, and the writer of the movie of me. And it seems like... uh, that contributes uh, in a profound way to how this collective movie of me, so to speak, uh, leads us into some really uh, tough polarity in this world, especially in this country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, what about the that little meme, mini-me that we yeah. have so much difficulty well, with? Well, that's, that's part of the sort of national and international... Uh, catastrophe that we're in the middle of is that we're yeah we're all we've all been conditioned to see our lives as atomized conditioned individuals and that's who we are period and and we can't deny that part of who we are because it's really really important we're not here without our me selves but if that's all we are right if that's the measure of what we are then, you know, it's like, what kind of a life are we living? So I think when you plunge deeply into who you actually are, 
you kind of get to the bottom of the me part of you and you fall out the other end of it and you see that the me wouldn't be there without everybody else that the me is an expression of something you know far larger than this small individual and so then you can appreciate yourself right you can appreciate your me when you realize it's not yours and it's not you it's an expression of something larger than you that also is existing all the time in your life so that changes the whole context yeah how do you i mean but we have so much conditioning so much so many habitual patterns so much uh, neurotic tendencies yeah uh, i mean your tradition deals with it head on uh, yeah. obviously and and many of the uh, and and so does ours in fact in coming from a little bit of a different angle but mm-hmm. in terms of somebody just now starting to realize the depth of which they believe in their thoughts and stories what's uh, what's your first uh, impulse to tell somebody this might help you practice yeah well i think the most important thing is to um be close with those thoughts and feelings. Maybe they might uh, sit down a bit and not be doing a bunch of stuff and just sit there and breathe and feel the body, feel the present moment and all that's in the present moment. And then just be with those thoughts and feelings and observe them, let them come, let them go using the breath and the feeling of the body as a way of interrupting the ongoing commitment to the small me and just observe and notice the space around every thought and the space within every thought. And then little by little with that ongoing practice, you start noticing a whole lot more stuff. For example, you start noticing, wow, you know, the more I insist on me, and protecting me, the more miserable I am and the more knots I get tied up into. Maybe if I, what would happen if I stopped, you know, doing that and just sort of like let something pass through me instead of grabbing hold of it or trying to fend it off, what would happen then? And then you discover, oh, you know what? Uh, I see something more than I saw before. In other words, I'm not living anymore like an embattled person. I have some more serenity. I have some more vision in my life. So little by little, just by paying attention, with some mm. space around things, you kind of see a different picture. Mm. So that's, in a way, a very simple thing, but uh, that's probably the most powerful thing of all. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, keyword, little by little. Little so by little, yeah. Patience, little everybody. Little. Patience. Right. Patience, right. Yeah. Uh, so, Norman, you, as I said, I've been trying to see if how we could get together for years. Norman has a good friend that we have mutually, Mirabai Bush, who all, many of yeah. you know. And uh, so I was really taken by an article that you had in uh, Shambhala's Son from five years ago, and it was called Abandoned Hope. Got my interest right away. Uh, uh-huh. Do you remember it? I don't, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Aban- <laughs> well, good, I'm going to refresh you. Abandoned yeah, Hope. And other surprising slogans to help you handle anger. Now, oh uh, yes, yes, as many right, from yeah from the uh, from the Lojong teachings. Right? Yes, from the Lojong teachings. Right, yeah, right, right. and uh, since as uh, another thing that many people know who listen to this podcast, that's another subject that um, 
uh, in terms of neurotic tendencies or habitual patterns, anger. Well, I mean, you know, most of us have something of that going on in yeah. one way or another. So uh, I just loved uh, some of the things that you, you talked about here. You talked about um, and, and just went through a basic mindfulness exercise, the ability to create the inner space necessary to investigate and be fully present with an emotion. You yeah. just did that. Phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, strong emotions, especially negative ones like greed, anger, jealousy, and so on, spin us around. Mindfulness gives us a, a chance to be present. And again, that's uh, the perfect start-off thing for anybody right. who, who realizes, geez, okay, I, I really I have a chance to be happy and loving and so on, so I'm going to take some, some steps. So to do talk about Lojong and uh, the mind training from the mind t- training teachings of Tibet, mm-hmm. um, I, I think, uh, although, you know, oftentimes these teachings can be very uh, esoteric and complex, uh, from the Tibetans, but in my mind, there's some of the most, uh, their view of reality rings the truest to me anyhow. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and, and I know you could say the same for, uh, uh, the Zen tradition as well, which I know less than I know the Tibetans. Um, mm-hmm. but can you just talk about, uh, just give people an idea of what it is and how it can really be effective? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that, that's, uh, my, my previous book, my last book before this one was called uh, Training in Compassion. Uh, and, and it was about, uh, it's about the Lojong teachings. And basically, um, the, the, there's a very famous text that I was commenting on and giving my sort of contemporary Zen take on this text. And it consists of 59 short slogans. Uh, one of them is Abandon Hope. Mm. And uh, they're, they're pithy slogans uh, that are very provocative. And the idea is you take them up as practices. So you take a slogan like abandon hope and you use that as a kind of a searchlight to look at your own experience. So for instance, you notice, uh, okay, I I went out today to a meeting with a friend and I hoped such and so and so and so would happen in the meeting. And because I had that hope and that expectation and that desire, I screwed up the meeting. You know, I, I offended my friend. It didn't work out. <laughs> Instead of going there and without hope, but just the willingness to be present for whatever would happen, uh, because I wasn't able to do that because I had needs and desires and expectations, I actually end up ended up offending my friend, and I ended up even possibly you know ruining or diminishing a friendship. Hmm. So, so that's the idea that that uh, what we call hope is actually an expectation and a need and a desire to get something out of a future moment rather than allowing a future moment to be what it needs to be. Mm. So the slogan helps you to see how often you do that and you're not even aware you're doing it (laughs) and how stupid it is, you know, and you can't make the future be the way you want it to be. The future is always going to be the way it needs to be. Mm. And if you're able to be open to that, you can have some happiness and some flexibility to respond to the Mm. thing that happens in the future. And if you have an expectation, then you're just going to feel, you know, crushed and disappointed and even bitter because what you expected, what you wanted didn't happen. So it's funny because lately, you know, lately I've been saying the opposite thing. Lately I've been thinking about hope and I have this whole thing. I, I realized 
you know, like a while ago, I thought to myself, well, in the present moment, you know, we talk about the present moment, right? As if the past was not the present moment, the future was not the present moment, but the present moment is something special, not the past, not the future. But the truth of the matter is that the past is in the present moment. Like right now, you and I are talking to each other, but actually the whole history of your life is right here, right now, right? And the same with me. You know, you wouldn't be able to speak if you didn't have a past that was manifesting in the future, in the present, I mean, because you learn how to speak, you have a whole history with language and the spiritual practices, and that's why we're talking. So the past is here. But also the future is here because in this present moment, when we're talking to each other, there is in this moment a potential for a future moment like that just is happening now as we speak. Every present moment has within it the potential, which is a real thing, leading into a future moment. When that's the case, when that's no longer the case, when there's a present moment without a potential, for a future moment built into it, you're dead. That's your last moment. <laughs> the moment when there's a present moment with no future moment built into it, that's the last moment of your life. So every, every present has within it a future, and every future is an unknown future. So in other words, there's something hopeful about that. There's something, you, you, in this moment, you're alive, and there will be another moment, and you don't know what's going to happen in that moment. Something bad could happen. Something wonderful could happen. The only thing you know is you cannot determine precisely what will happen in that moment. So my argument is that not to hope for something, right? I want this to happen. Not that, because that you should abandon. But to be, be hopeful, to realize that being alive is inherently a hopeful condition because being alive always has built into it a future and that future always has potential bad things can happen yes but even when bad things happen you can turn them around and make them into something beautiful mm. and good things can happen so uh now in the kind of current moment of our hopelessness really i've been saying let's be hopeful <laughs> but not hopeful <laughs> for something right? right let's not be hopeful that let's say we win the next election you might not win the next election but be hopeful whatever mm -hmm. happens there's hope built into mm -hmm. your life that's what life is life actually is hopefulness mm -hmm. so that's yeah. what i've been i've been talking about the opposite side of that yeah <laughs> that's beautiful and, yeah. uh, and it has the Bhagavad Gita essence in there as well not looking yes. for results yes. and so on not looking for uh, results that's right yeah. And uh, but I do. I'll have to talk to Ramdas Norman about this. I mean, Good. Mr. Well, be here now. We're gonna. Yeah. yeah. Well, be be here now. I think includes all this. Yeah. No. Uh, I, I think that to say that the present moment uh, it, it doesn't include the future and the past it makes the present moment too small. Yeah. The present no. moment is vast because it's all inclusive. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful, actually. And if you, and next time you do see Ram Dass, when you go to Hawaii, give him a big hug for me because uh, he and I are friends. We we were on a board together, the Zen Hospice, yeah. uh, not the Zen yeah. Hospice, the Meta Institute board. Uh -huh. We were on yeah, that with together. Frank we before, saw each yeah. other with Frank. Yeah, we saw yeah. each other regularly before he moved to Hawaii. Uh, years ago. Yeah. 
I'll see him in two days. I absolutely Good. will give him a hug. Good. From you. Do, please do. Please do. Yeah. I'm sure he'll remember me. Or maybe oh, no, of course. Maybe. Yeah, no. He's completely uh, intact if he sometimes can't uh, express the way he used to. Yeah. Um, so, okay, here's another one. Don't figure others out. Yeah, okay. that's a good one, isn't it? That's a good one. Yeah, because we're always convinced we know one another, right? And we know he's like this, and he's going to react yeah. like that, and he's this way and that way. But we're all mysterious to one another. You know, I think, again, when you do spiritual practice, when you enter into meditation or retreat, you kind of realize that in some ways you are a mystery to yourself. You know, the part of yourself that runs around in circles like a dog chasing its tail you exhaust that part of yourself on the first day of the retreat. And after that, <laughs> you're, you're really sort of like discovering over and over again the mystery of yourself. Well, if you're mm. mysterious, so is everybody else. Mm. So when we, when we you know, typecast our friends and relatives and say, he's like this, she's like that, we're really missing the essence of who a person is. So don't figure anybody out. Don't, don't, you should approach everybody like an awesome thousand-foot cliff rather than a, a you know a pathetic person that you think you know no yeah. you don't know anybody mm. boy that's a day-to-day minefield that we all yeah right I know. we do it all the time that's the thing so much of the so much stuff that we do on a regular basis and take for granted is stupid stuff <laughs> that if we thought about it for a minute we would immediately say yeah that's stupid i don't want to be doing that but then we observe ourselves and we realize, God, I'm doing that all the time. And I, and I just take it for granted as being the way life is. You know, why yeah. am I doing that? Yeah. I ought to be able to do better. Yeah. And, and you see it as the way it just fits into this beautiful defense mechanism story to protect something or other of exactly. yourself. Yeah. Exactly. And, yeah. and the whole world is conspiring to encourage us in that mode of behavior. Yeah. Right. The whole world. I mean, it's almost like, you know, the economy wants us feeling that way because then we shop more and we buy more and, we, you know, and, and we're really looking for the coolest products to make us look good. You know, uh, the, the, the government wants us that way so we can be scared and, and vote for the people who, you know, promise to protect us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not only us and our own stupidity. It's a kind of vast conspiracy, yeah. so to speak, of our friends yeah. and neighbors and the government and the newspaper and everybody. So we really have to like establish some strong counterforce in our lives in order to overcome that. Uh, and that takes more than just my decision. I need support in that, right? And that's why we have traditions of practice and practices and communities and teachers and so on, because yeah. we need that kind of support. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Okay, here's uh, the other one. Uh, another one is work with your biggest problems first. And I, I look at that, and you know, some people might go, "Wow, that's a mountain." Maybe if I just could take care of a, a little guy here for a minute. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, why biggest problem first? Well, um, I think that uh, avoidance is a huge factor in our mm. lives, and. Uh, under the theory, well, let me start small and work my way up, uh, we yeah. can avoid our real problems forever. So, you know, it's not that we have to be constantly, every minute, thinking about our most drastic problems. 
but we do have to have the spirit of not being afraid to encounter those problems and, and realize that sometimes something very small in our lives has something very big behind it. So let's be willing to go there and willing to look at that. Yeah. Uh, and, and if you were talking about, uh, in this particular part, anger. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I love this part. Most of us aren't courageous enough to lash out at the people we're actually angry at. Right. Instead, we lash out at someone else who's safe, take, or we take pot shops, gossip, or gross and feel indignant in the privacy of our own minds. I love that. Yes, right. <laughs> so great. Right. Uh, okay, next one is, uh, well, you, we already went through this, Abandon Hope, and I, I love the, uh, the way that got into uh, the du- dual nature of, uh, yeah, Abandon Hope, but don't be hopeless. Don't be hopeless, right. Yeah. Abandon Hope doesn't mean be hopeless. Right? Yeah. Uh, so the next one is don't poison yourself. Um, and you're talking in this case about self-centeredness. And I love the Tibetan term self-cherishing. I find yeah. that yeah. very explicit. You yeah. Know, oh, yes, I'm going to hang on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about the antidote <laughs> to that uh, complete, well, absolute. Yeah, Obsession. it's an interesting. It's an interesting thing. I mean, there's you know there's different ways of talking about this in different traditions. Hmm. But uh, some traditions talk about uh, being egoless, you know, transcending ego or abandoning ego. But in my way of looking at it, uh, I think you actually need a strong ego in order to live and practice uh, carefully. But uh, an ego that is not one that we're um, stuck on or needing to defend, but an ego that understands its real basis in impermanence, death, and connection to others. So I need my ego to talk to you in this interview and to communicate with whoever is listening. I need my ego to love my family and be there for them. So it's not like I want my ego to disappear, I want choices to disappear, I want uh, intentional action to disappear. It's just that I want to know what that ego is really about and what its basis really is. When I'm shaky about what my ego really is and what its basis is, then I'm motivated by anxiety and fear and attachment and, and, and greed and defensiveness and that whole thing that we were talking about a minute ago. So, uh, so this is about recognizing the impermanence and the inner connection to everything else in this world that lies at the foundation of my atomized ego self. Hmm. Once I know that, I can celebrate my small self, my ego self, without doing what the Tibetans call self-cherishing, favoring myself over all others, yeah. or unrealistically holding on to myself when I can't hold on to myself. Hmm. Yeah, as you say here, self-concern is counterproductive. It uh, is. It doesn't yeah. help you. You know, yeah. it, you, What you want, self-concern won't get for you. You know. Yeah. And, and the antidote, as you say here, is wise concern for others. That yes. will balance self-concern. That that's the right. key to it for me. 
right there. But t- wise concern. That's a you know we've got yeah, that word well, in there. Well, wise it's tricky concern. because because you know I think that we have a deep tradition in the West of um, sacrificing myself for others. So I'm going to be altruistic. I'm going to help others, and uh, I can and I can't ever even think of myself. I, sh- I you know if I ever if I ever think of myself then uh, I'm not really, in that moment, I'm not thinking of others. And what I really need mm. to do is think of others. It's, it's almost like the sacrifice of Jesus, almost, is, is like a, a metaphor for our whole culture. You know, I, I should be willing to like, lay down my life. You know? And of course, there are cases when that, that is the thing to do, and, we, and we, we're, maybe we're able to do it in that moment. But in general, um, no, a wise concern for others means... I'm concerned for others, and also I'm concerned for myself because if I burn myself out or trash myself or build up resentment in myself against the other that I'm supposed to be helping, I'm not going to help anymore. It's only when I take care of my body and my mind and my emotions that I'm actually Mm -hmm. able to do any good for anybody. So a wise concern for others is not a self-sacrificing kind of hysterical, overly idealistic concern for others, but a concern for others' ultimate well-being. So when I say ultimate well-being, I, that means that, you know, if, if, I, if I'm concerned for you, and therefore I feel I need to uh, give in to your every impulse and grant you your every wish, this may work against your actual ultimate need, your ultimate, you know, well-being. So wise self-interest requires that I really understand what this life is about and, and to the best of my ability, what is really needed here. Uh, and, I, and I really play to what is really needed rather than to um, what I think is needed or what anybody thinks is needed on a small yeah. bore basis, right? Yeah, or fulfilling desire yeah. systems. Yes, exactly. You. Other so people's you know, karma. Wise, wise concern for self or others is, is a tricky business. Yeah. Easy to be deceptive one way or the other. Mm. Self-deceptive or just not seeing what's going on. Yeah. So uh, the word viveka, a discrimi- spiritual discrimination, would play into this as well in terms of cultivating. Yes, yes exactly. Yeah, mm. knowing. And then, you know, that's a lot of that is by trial and error. You know, you do your best to see through what's going on. And then you, you realize, oh, I was wrong there. So now I learned something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the last one here is, is really great. Don't be so predictable. <laughs> yeah. It's a compliment of don't figure others out. Don't be so sure you have yourself figured yourself out. Yourself figured out, right. Yeah. right, right. Uh, yeah, sometimes in my Dharma groups, hmm. we, have, uh, we have like small group conversations, and I'll try to get people to talk about their practice and talk about the teachings. And sometimes I give the instruction to the group. I say, let's be experimental in these conversations don't say what you always say don't say the thing that you think all the time let yourself be surprised at what comes out of your mouth don't be so predictable Mm. that must uh, be entertaining at times it is entertaining sometimes yeah (laughs) Um, sometimes people say i i don't even know if i if i actually think this but you know Here's what I'm saying experimentally yeah. here. Right? <laughs> You're off the hook. It's an experiment. Yeah. yeah, so, yeah right. Right. Um, 
And you, you go on to say here the whole ideal, uh, idea of spiritual cultivation or education in general, for that matter, is that we can change. And that, that's yes. such an essential thing. Most right. of us have a commitment, though, to proving the opposite, don't we? <laughs> right. We take pride in being the way we say and think we are, even when we say we want to change. A deeper look shows us, while yes, we do want to change, we're committed to uh, and comfortable with the way we have defined ourselves. That's yes. again back to our story uh, yes, that we right. sneakily work against the change we so fervently want to make. Oh my right. God. Right. The, the, the intricacies of the ways that we deceive ourselves and trick ourselves are, are, are prodigious. Prodigious is right. Extraordinary. <laughs> Extraordinary. Then that's one of the things that happens. You know, the, the more that you practice and practice mindfulness and uh, meditation and the more you start to see the extraordinary amount of ways in which you are yes. taking advantage of your poor little <laughs> self guy right. it's unbelievable and the motivations yeah. especially uh, yeah. I, had a, I had a great talk with uh, Joseph Goldstein uh, not that long ago and we, uh -huh. we talked about the uh, motivation a, a, a lot in this one uh, podcast and when you start to really see the th i think the thing you you'd agree the thing that we all do to one another or to ourselves and one another is absolutely uh when we see these small-minded motivations these selfish motivations uh that kind of judge uh, and jury that we become in that moment is so counter uh, counterproductive yes. to being able to just allow the space spaciousness as you were talking about earlier to, right and, and to i think be... we develop a sense of humor about ourselves yeah. over time and to, yeah. you know a sense of acceptance of our own stupidity because we know well human beings just do that and i do it too and as long as i'm not going to let that run me i can be generous with myself when i see it yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, more recently, uh, you, I think this is another article, though I can't, I'm not sure I know where it was, but uh, it's, it's all about Sangha. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful article, Norman. And it's, uh, the work that we've been doing, you know, since uh, we started this foundation, and we have this podcast network, and doing all the stuff we do with Ramdas and Sharon, Jack, Joseph, all of our mutual friends, uh, ha the primary thing that I see as the director of the foundation is the extraordinary value and. Uh, profoundness of satsang sangha yeah. that th what people get is beyond anything else right beyond right. the content beyond the camaraderie beyond the heart opening beyond all of that is this uh, this way of conne uh, uh, true connection yeah and and i know uh, and the buddha has said uh, as as you've quoted here having good friends is the whole of the holy life Yes. Uh, yeah, friendship is the most important element in the spiritual path. Everything else naturally flows from it. Can you talk about this? Yeah. Well, it's very moving to hear you speak of it from your own experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, at this moment, 
when there's so much spoken about and written about meditation and there's so many programs about it it's a shame that <laughs> this point is almost completely lost mm. because uh the scientific research the good news about it is that it's it's promoted meditation and gotten a lot more people to meditate but the bad news about it is it it it, it depicts meditation in the context of a kind of self-medication almost, right? In other words, there's something wrong with my brain. Meditation can fix my brain. So I will do meditation to fix my brain in the way that I want it, in a, in a, in a good way. So I'm really interested in meditation. Oh, and, and maybe there's some good meditation teachings. Well, that's good. I'll access those teachings. Uh, I'll get them through a program or online because those teachings will help me to meditate more effectively to shape my brain in the way that I would like to shape it. And all that is fine in a way, you know, it's all sort of true, but it leaves out the magic of community, hmm. the magic of relationship, the magic of friendship that adds a dimension to all this that makes all the difference in the world. Hmm. And, and that's the kind of thing that I think, you know, religion talks about community uh so that you know we're you and i are both in spiritual traditions and so we have spiritual friends over many many decades and that's been you know something that was fostered and discussed in the traditions um but uh in the mindfulness movement it's it's not yet i think it'll probably eventually rise to the discussion but so far we haven't had much of it but yes this is what we need collectively right i mean humanity got to stop being a bunch of atomized individuals and atomized cultures and atomized nation states yeah. there has to be a bigger sense of cooperating within not only the species of humanity but also the entire earth community we have to have that consciousness that we are living radically in a community in which we absolutely depend on each other for every breath in order to do the things we need to do to live on the planet together. So it's so important, yeah. yeah. And it's so inspiring when you feel it. I mean, I think that, uh, as I say, you and I appear to be roughly the same in the same generational uh, group. And in our generation, we've you know had uh, a whole lifetime of spiritual connection with a bunch of people that we know well over the years. And, yeah. Yeah, and, and it, just, it just makes you feel happy just thinking of them, right? All you got to do is, like, remember your spiritual friends and, and you know, a, a bad moment becomes a good moment just yeah. in that moment of thinking of it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You had a wonderful, uh, I read through here, a uh, relationship with a, uh, a rabbi yeah. that uh, was very important to you and actually led yeah. you to be quite involved, involved also with uh, Jewish mysticism. Can you, can you talk yeah. about just your meeting with him and how that developed? And, you know, it was lovely. Well, well we were, we were, close friends before either what's one his of us, name his name was he's he's passed on his yeah. name is rabbi alan lew l-e-w mm. and he and i were uh, fellow students together at the iowa writers workshop so we met when we were both in our 20s and we were both writers and we both went on to continue our writing careers but we also entered into spiritual practice and through a long incredible series of mishaps and coincidences he went from being a zen student with me we were students together 
to becoming an ordained rabbi. So we were very close friends long before he ever was a rabbi, and he studied Zen for about 10 years. Mm. And that informed his way of uh, practicing Judaism. And so when he became a rabbi and moved back to San Francisco to take on a large congregation uh, in San Francisco, we began uh, doing meditation retreats together, and we started the Jewish Meditation Center in San Francisco together that is still going 10 years yeah. after his passing. Wow. And so he, he was a, a very close, dear, dear friend. We basically grew up together in our spiritual lives. And I was very influenced by his uh, understanding of Judaism. And I studied Judaism with him and, and really uh, you know, learned a lot from it and came to appreciate it. I grew up Jewish and, and came to appreciate it in a way that I never thought of never wow. heard of when i was a kid you know really wow yeah i'm i'm just thinking gee i'd like a little of that myself because i i grew up also jewish yeah. and, and went away and you know it's when i was quite young got introduced to eastern practice and so yes on. me too Same i've never thing, come yeah. back around the way that you have though yes well so. it's been beautiful for me to come back around to it because uh it's, I can't even describe how wonderful it is to sort of come full circle and to be able to, I mean, I, I, I appreciate Judaism so deeply now hmm. because of my long journey away from it and all this practice that I've done over so many years. Now, I really see how soulful it is. You know, it's very, very soulful and hmm. very, very wise. There's so much in it. It's quite, it's quite incredible. You know, who knew, right? Nobody, nobody <laughs> even knows. Or, smart people. You know, smart people who uh, are well-read and even spiritually adept reject it, uh, not seeing the, 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 the riches that are, that are there. <laughs> uh, well, I got put off by one of the ushers at my synagogue whose vast output of halitosis completely <laughs> wrecked me. Okay, that was it. I'm well, gone, yeah, buddy. Many, 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 many reasons why many many people were turned <laughs> off to judaism in their yeah. youth and, and just didn't think there was anything in it at all yeah um in fact one of the funny things is that when we first started doing our meditation retreats rabbi lou and i we did them we did them as like jewish buddhist retreats so we called them translating buddhism translating judaism and so he would you know we would meditate together and then he would give some Jewish teachings and I would give some Buddhist teachings and we would invite people to come and join us. Well, what we didn't realize when we started doing this is that what we were actually doing is we were inviting Jewish people who had in their youth gotten pissed off at Judaism and gone to Eastern religions and they were practicing those religions very successfully, but they had various thoughts about judaism that they never shared because who's interested in sharing thoughts about judaism in a buddhist retreat or a hindu retreat or something like that yeah. so we were inviting them to show up and bitch about judaism so, <laughs> so our retreats were nothing more than people saying stuff like you just said about yeah, the, the rabbi the who pissed them off and <laughs> yeah. the congregation who was so um, um you know uh, hypocritical and blah 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 and, and the poor Rabbi Lou, he was like dying, you know, because he was trying to defend the faith. And people were so angry. <laughs> oh, and we finally ended up stopping that, doing it that way and just doing it as Jewish meditation because 
I said to him, you know, I think we're doing important work. We're letting people, we're giving people a chance to talk about this stuff that they've been thinking for 30 years and never yeah. talked about. Yeah, right. But he said, yeah, it might be important work, but it's too hard. I don't <laughs> want to do it anymore. <laughs> That's great. It was uh, funny. Yeah. Um, so talking about long friendships, and you mentioned here with good people along the path of spiritual practice, and when that becomes a central part of your life, and you, yeah. you realize that is a central part of your life, and then you mentioned the Buddha says, for spiritual qualities conducive to awakening. Uh, so, wait, I'm missing something. Uh, when along friendships with good people along the path of spiritual practice is a central feature of your life, it is, that's it, it's impossible, almost impossible, as the Buddha says, for spiritual qualities conducive to awakening not to ripen. That's a profound right. exactly. major statement. Yes, that's right. And, and you, you know, this is true from your own experience that, you know, you, you, when you have good spiritual friends who have good qualities, it is impossible for you to maintain crappy qualities and remain yeah, right. in good relationship with them. They inspire you to behave in a beautiful way and to feel and think in a beautiful way. And you do the same for them. Yeah. That really happens. You know, you yeah. hear, you know, when, when you, uh, hear your your worst, most resentful and angry thoughts coming out of your mouth, being spoken to your good spiritual friend. You you that goes back to you, and you say, "Oh my God, you know, that's not who I am. That's not who I want to be." Yeah. And little by little, through the relationship, you change. I think relationships in the spiritual path. Not only people sometimes people sometimes talk about relationships to teachers. But I think that uh, it's not just teachers. It's everybody we practice with. Uh, yeah. Really is so important for our development. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and it's not just seeing, as you mentioned, one example is just seeing this, the uh, pukey shit that comes out of you <laughs> when you, you yeah, recognize yeah. it very easily, but it's also sitting there with somebody and then suddenly something comes upon them of, uh, divine presence, shall we call it? Yeah. And nothing can happen except that self-manifestation of that same quality happens like automatically. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Where two or three that's are right. gathered in my name, you know, that's that, right. that kind of that's thing. That's right. That's so, right. I love what you, you you quoted Emerson. I love this, that this form of human relationship and basically that the friendship, power of yeah. Sangha, yeah, Sangha friendship is called a masterpiece of nature. Yes. Isn't that great? It's beautiful. Wow. Yeah, Emer Emerson is actually great. People don't read him much anymore, but he's terrific. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, we're going to, aside from getting your books up on the uh, page, uh, the Mind Rolling page, so, uh, Corey, you're listening to this? Let's get some Emerson book up there and suggest yeah. that as a reading thing and link it. Yeah. Um, now, here's something else that caught my eye, uh, and it is so true. It's not unusual to be in a community with someone who pushes all your buttons. There's always mm -hmm. been anywhere <laughs> yeah, I have right, ever been. Right, right. That person's right. been there. Right. You know? Right. Talk about the efficacy of that. Well, uh, to me, this is one of the most beautiful things in the world. If you have a mature community of people who have practiced together, and have you know good honest supportive relationships 
comes into that community a really difficult person. And that person is difficult because of inner contradictions within themselves, but also because of those inner contradictions, they've gotten reactions from other people over their whole life, right? In other words, I'm a difficult person, people relate to me as a difficult person. And so that reinforces the difficulty within myself. Well, if that person comes into a mature community, spiritual community and doesn't receive those usual reactions, right? But instead receives a reaction of you know, tolerance, patience, kindness, and a certain degree of love, that's gonna little by little turn down the flames of pain mm. that make that person difficult. And little by little by little, the person is tamed and becomes a happier person. And so I've seen that happen in our communities. Yeah. And it's kind of wonderful. That's one side of it. The other side of it is that, that for me as an individual, when that person pushes my buttons, now I'm challenged. It was real easy to relate to all the nice people who are very sweet to me. And so it's easy for me to be sweet to them. But here comes somebody that I don't feel like being sweet to. In fact, I feel like pushing back on them because they're pushing on me. And now I'm challenged to stretch more than I did before. My kindness has to be bigger than it was before. My patience has to be wider than it was before in order to receive this person and to behave in relation to them in the way that I want to behave. So the, a difficult person stretches me every time. Mm. And But don't you also, before increasing the sphere of kindness and so on, you have to cut the self-interest off at the pass. That's you mean your own self-interest? Yeah, your own self-interest. Yeah, right, you do. Yeah, and protection. It's your, self, it's your self-interest and self-protection that, that makes you want to push back, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and oh, you got here Emerson and the Buddha, by the way. I love Emerson <laughs> and the Buddha. This is not something <laughs> that you'd read. Uh, both believe that uh, spiritual friendship requires two elements, truth and tenderness. Yes. Uh, uh, I love that combination. Yes. Uh, is, isn't it so? I mean, yeah, our, yeah. Our, our own tradition and uh, from Neem Karoli Baba, uh, and Ramdas repeats this ad infinitum, his whole career as a teacher. I was told by Neem Karoli by Baba Maharaji, Ramdas. Love everyone and tells the truth. Uh, tell the truth. Love mm-hmm. everyone and tell the truth. And he would go. Mm-hmm. Truth is, I don't love everyone. And this is back when he. <laughs> now he's doing a lot better at that. Uh, but he realized he was coming from the one, not from yeah. not yeah. from polarization and so on. So beautiful thing, truth and tenderness. Yes. And, uh, yeah. Uh, and tenderness is such a great word, though, Norman. I. I it, I think nobody can even say the word without evoking generosity. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then here's something I didn't know. The the Buddha in the coming era, of course, I did know the Buddha, Buddha of the coming era is called Maitreya, uh, which is the Buddha of the practice of friendship, which you mentioned yeah. in here. Maitreya means friendship. It's the same. It's the same word as metta. Oh, right. Maitreya is a Sanskrit word, and metta is a Pali word, oh. but it's the same word. Wow. 
So, yeah. Friends share one mind, one heart, one will. They are for one another even more than a person can be for themselves. Yeah. It's hard for people to realize the, that. And uh, that's why the, uh, in my mind, why I love this article and I love this conversation, uh, that uh, certainly cultivating sangha, community, satsang, whatever you want to call it, uh, allows that kind of, uh, A, truth and tenderness to come into relationship with, yeah. with, with each other. Yeah. And, and then it is true that somebody can be there even more than you can be there for, your, for yourself. Yeah, yeah Maybe I think it's that. true. Yeah. Trust think it's is true. involved, right? Yeah. Yeah, sometimes, you know, we, we, we are not as generous with ourselves as we are with a friend. You know, we really, you know, I think we all yeah. are probably yeah. with, with good justice skeptical of ourselves and of our own motivations. We can see our pettiness but we can be more generous than that with our friends. You know, we can really uh, love them and more than, than we love ourselves. And in that way, um, you know, give them a profound gift. And, and they probably do the same with us. So it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. Well, uh, we're near the end here. Mm-hmm. But uh, I just got to, I mean, it's... Some of these, some of the way you are a fantastic writer, Norman. Okay, that's oh, all there is to it. I really love how you put words together. And here, uh, you talk about Rabbi Lou, and you say his, our intimacy was one in which others were always welcome. Huge point right there and then. Yes, yes, right. Huge. That's right. Um, because we were such good friends, others were encouraged and inspired to be good friends. This is the nature of spiritual friendship. It never depends on division or discrimination between people. Love can't be exclusive. Yeah. It's boundless, empty, open, and free. Yes. And, uh, yeah, I can't, uh, as I said earlier, I've seen this so, so powerfully in the, in the work that we've been doing and what we've been involved with over yeah. these last number of years. Uh, and I, I have been told this directly by, uh, 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 I don't know if you know this stuff, but uh, Neem Karoli Baba, when he left in 73, uh, a uh, woman saint from the hills took over taking care of his ashrams, basically taking care of us. Because we were just, uh-huh. you know, we were in our 20s. We were like, yeah. what the fuck yeah. happened here? Yeah, 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 he yeah. was there, yeah. he not there, what are we doing? Yeah. So uh, over and over and over, she would say to me, Raghu, the most important thing is satsang. People getting together and sharing food, meditation, chant, whatever. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and this Beautiful. has been, yeah, this has been our... Uh, totally a mission of ours and a mission of Ramdas is uh, all these years. So, and yeah. that's what this is too. And I'm so happy to have the opportunity to ha- to hang out with you in this way, uh, even though it's a little virtual. It's <laughs> second best to being there in person. So, thank you, Norman, for being here. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate it. Nice, nice to talk to you. Yeah, and everybody, uh, all the links that you'll need to Norman's books and uh, website, Norman. It's Everyday Zen Foundation that uh, Norman is, uh, runs and is a big part of. And uh, so we'll see you next time 
on Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Mind Rolling. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>